Well, you're going to have to peel back your minds on this one, Onion Heads, because we're heading into touchy territory, straight up and head-on religion. Makes me think of the little boy who was overly optimistic. His parents were concerned that his wildly optimistic nature would not serve him well in the real world. So, when Christmas came, they decided to try and adjust his attitude. They filled his bedroom with horse manure and sent him upstairs for his big Christmas present, figuring this would teach him a needed lesson. When they got to his room, he was digging through the manure. What are you doing, they asked. I know there has to be a pony in here somewhere. Like the boy in the story, we are faced with the arduous task of finding the hidden gems in the 66 books of the Bible, which span 1,500 years. Like Richard Rohr says, life itself is always three steps forward and two steps backward. We get the point, and then we lose or doubt it. In that, the biblical text mirrors our own human consciousness and journey. Our job is to see where the three steps forward texts are heading, invariably toward mercy, simplicity, inclusion, nonviolence, and trust, and to spot the two steps backward texts, which are usually about vengeance, exclusion, a rather petty and insecure God, law over grace, incidentals over substance, and technique over actual relationship. So in order to find the gems, we need to establish some foundational principles. First, what do we mean by religion? The most ancient meaning of the word means to take into careful account. So to not be religious is to be neglectful. To pay attention, to keep your eyes and ears open, to see deeply into the nature of things, to be observant, to be self-reflective, and to move through life slowly all have to do with being religious. This is our guide to being religious each moment of our day. Second, old Martin Luther gives us a beautiful image that provides perhaps the key organizing principle. The Bible is the cradle in which we find the Christ child. Now, the cradle is important, not in and of itself, but because it surrounds, holds, and presents the Christ child. And why not Jesus, but rather the Christ child? To state the obvious, Christ is not Jesus' last name. So we might think of the Christ as the eternal and everlasting everything. Or as Martin Prechtel teaches, the diversity of the sound of everything in nature, just being themselves, is the bloodstream of God. 
In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Paul states, There is only Christ. He is everything, and he is in everything. And in Colossians 1, 19-20, we read, Through him all things are reconciled, everything in heaven and everything on earth. Franciscan friar Richard Rohr concludes that everything without exception is the outpouring of God. Third, Jesus comes teaching and preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He tells us that the kingdom of heaven is within us, an inner reality, and at hand in the here and now. We don't die to get there. The kingdom of heaven is not some prize awarded at the moment of death. We must first wake up and become aware of its presence in and among us now. So we are speaking of religious experience, taking into careful account. Awakening to the spiritual world united with the world of matter. Not believing dogma and doctrine passed down through the ages, but actually experiencing that which first led to religious doctrine and dogma. For example, when we have a soulful perspective on the sacrament of Holy Communion, we experience the uniting of matter and spirit. This bread is my body given for you. This wine is my blood shed for you. And if you've been brought up in a liturgical church, then you know the theme of Advent, the first season of the liturgical year, is a series of A words. Be awake, alert, aware, pay attention. Why? Because the kingdom is a state of consciousness, a new way of looking at the world, essentially the world turned on its head. It means an undoing and a redoing and a renewal of our mind, an ending and a beginning, the start of a lifelong process of consciously dying and rising. Fourth, it is a mistaken meaning to call the Bible the Word of God, because the Bible itself does not primarily call itself the Word of God. In the prologue to the Gospel of John, which mirrors the first words of Genesis, we read, In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. In the ancient church, a few of the Eastern teachers saw that the Christ was 
more encompassing, expansive, and eternal than Jesus himself. Rohr states Jesus is the union of human and divine in space and time. Christ is the eternal union of matter and spirit from the beginning of time and beyond time and space. Fifth, how do we interpret Scripture? When we approach Scripture, we do so with humility. We are Western people reading an Eastern text. We must take into careful account context within the text, ancient culture, historical precedents, what the text first meant to the people of that day, the languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, advances in scholarship and the work of various translators. I recall the story of an old monk who was transcribing, transcribing an ancient biblical text when his fellow monks heard him cry out in anguish. They came running, What in heaven's name is the matter? He cried out, It says celebrate, not celibate. Now the fundamentalist interpretive approach of believing a literal meaning is a much, much later development, emerging from 19th century revivalism in the South. So let me be clear, the best thing to come out of Kentucky is bourbon, not theology. A literal approach to scripture is not only an interpretive choice, but the worst choice. Now, in terms of authority, for centuries there was only the Pope and the councils of the Church. Then, after the Reformation, authority landed on the Bible, both external modes of authority. But a mature approach means moving from external to internal authority. We all must engage a process of growing in spiritual adulthood, which implies that Scripture is alive as a text, deepening in meaning and interpretation and application to our lives. Moving to internal authority allows us to take in what we can of the teachings of Jesus and make them ours. We risk owning our meaning. Sixth, there is a difference between Jesus and the church. Once the church gets its hands on the teachings of Jesus, the church quietly turns to institutional investments in meaning and purpose. There was no church when Jesus walked the earth, so his message was free of institutional interpretations. And, as one New Testament scholar wrote, the early believers anticipated the return of Jesus, but instead what they got was the church. Seventh, from a psychological perspective, we can view Scripture as a projective device. Each of us finds ourselves unconsciously resonating with certain passages of Scripture. 
This means that the deeper our psychological lens and our self-awareness, the more we will be able to catch ourselves when we stray off base. We are willing to be corrected when our lens becomes cloudy or myopic. Consider the fellow who is being given the Rorschach test where a person provides interpretations to various ink blots. The psychologist showed the guy the first ink block and he replied, well, that's two people having sex. Second ink blot brought the same reply, well, that's two people having sex. And so it continued with the same response with each ink blot. At the end of the text, the psychologist concluded, I think you have some issues with sex. The fellow loudly protested, Come on, you're the one showing me all the dirty pictures. So, let's look at some remarks, teachings, and sayings of Jesus. What did Jesus call himself? If you've been raised in a Christian environment, your answer will likely be the Son of God. Bzzz, wrong. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does not call himself the Messiah, the Son of God, or God. These were designations adopted by his disciples in the early church after his death. So what did Jesus call himself? It was a very odd expression, awkwardly translated, the son of the man. The name first appeared in the Hebrew scriptures, largely in Ezekiel. The same expression appears in Matthew 31 times, Mark 14 times, Luke 26 times, and John 13 times. So counting parallels, there are 53 different sayings in the Gospels that include the Son of the Man. Walter Wink, a readable and psychologically astute New Testament scholar, asserts that the Son of the Man is best understood in translation as the human being in capital letters. Jesus Christ is the first and only true and authentic human being. We beings are made in the image of God, male and female, which means we are somehow like God, yet we are not fully human. Wink writes, if God is on some sense true humanness, then divinity inverts itself. Divinity is not a qualitatively different reality, quite the reverse. Divinity is fully realized humanity. Only God is, as it were, human. The goal of life, then, is not to become something we are not, divine, but to become what we truly are, human. We are not required to become divine, flawless, perfect, without blemish. We are invited simply to become human, which means growing through our sins and mistakes, learning by trial and error, 
being redeemed over and over from compulsive behavior, becoming ourselves scars and all. It means embracing and transforming those elements in us that we find unacceptable. It means giving up pretending to be good and instead becoming real. Are not the deepest reaches of our humanity born of our wounds? Let's connect this insight into Jesus as the human being to his first recorded words in Mark, our oldest gospel. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now we run into a little problem with this word, repent. The word has such negative connotations. I think of the revival tent preacher exhorting people to repent of their sins lest they experience the fires and torments of hell. How inviting. But it has come to my attention late in life that the New Testament Greek might be better translated as be transformed. Now there's an invitation. Be open to change. Engage a lifelong process of transformation. Having been a parish pastor for over 40 years, it appalls me that the typical Christian congregation is vehemently opposed to transformation. The seven last words of the church, we've never done it that way before. Historically, the Christian church as a whole has not been on the vanguard of societal change. Usually, it has been dragged, kicking, and screaming into change. Still, in 2023, the Methodist church is splitting over same-sex issues while so much of the United States is over it. The Catholic Church refuses to ordain women as priests. Some denominations still have men and women sit on opposite sides of the pews. Be transformed. Engage the process of becoming fully human. Well, this brings me to my favorite saying of Jesus. I'll quote the entire passage honoring the importance of context when approaching scripture, because there is so much here we want to pay careful attention to. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not, but later changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. And here it comes. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the whores are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Whoa. Why? Well, Jesus continues. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your mind and believe him. There are so many critical issues going on here. First, there is the issue of integrity, which we could define as our words matching our actions. Jesus is speaking to some of the most respected religious leaders of his day, yet they clearly think that the first man is doing the will of the Father, the man who refused to go, but later went anyway. Now, as someone who wears two hats, Lutheran pastor and pastoral psychotherapist, I am acutely aware of how difficult it is to look at scriptures through a psychological lens. In the West, we have a collective identification with the Bible that is, it is a religious book which, accepted or rejected, evokes a powerful emotional response. Need I say any more about the incredible energy generated by differing religious perspectives and beliefs? Yet risk putting yourself in the shoes of these respected religious leaders. They consider that the first man does the Father's will because he says no, but eventually goes and works. But why? Think about it. Reflect. Out of duty? Out of fear of punishment? Because he ultimately wants to be a good boy? But eternally is he still resentful? At a deeper level, does he want to rebel against the Father, which is why he said no in the first place? Again, let's remind ourselves this is an Eastern text being read by Western people. So I think this teaching is similar to a Zen koan. A koan is a paradoxical anecdote or riddle used in Zen Buddhism to demonstrate the inadequacy of logical reasoning and to provoke enlightenment. So this is a teaching meant to break down the ego. There is no so-called right or wrong answer. Instead, we are asked to ponder it. Let it work on you. Who did the will of the Father? Neither the first or the second son did the will of the Father. That's not the point. Spiritual insight is not about choosing between two equally right or wrong answers. Hold the teaching until you explode in frustration, and then you may reach a deeper truth. And the religious experts so don't get it that Jesus rips them, truly I tell you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Let's pause for a moment and examine the religious attitude of the day toward prostitution. You might enjoy reading The Gospel According to Jesus by Stephen Mitchell. It's quite readable and insightful. Recall in looking at the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John, Mitchell suggests that the woman caught in adultery would have been viewed as we today view a man who had raped and murdered a six-year-old child. 
That's how repugnant adultery was to the religion of the day. And according to the law of Moses, both a man and woman guilty of adultery are to be executed. So it's not a stretch to conclude that a prostitute is actively involved in multiple acts of adultery. Yet Jesus exhibits a loving, non-judgmental attitude toward the prostitute who is engaging an inner process of transformation. And did you catch the critical words to the religious experts? You did not change your minds. That is, you refuse to engage in the process of transformation. This process is different for each of us, yet it begins with an inner awakening that may take much work and time before there is any outward change. What Jesus cannot tolerate is self-righteousness because a self-righteous person has no need for transformation, because this person lacks self-reflection and an honest self-appraisal. In this regard, moralistic Christianity is by far the lowest form of spirituality. You really believe that the Holy One who invites prostitutes in the kingdom of God before the most religious people of the day really cares about smoking, drinking, cursing, dancing, clothing, attire, and what someone does in the bedroom. And as an aside, it's interesting to note that Southern Baptists who pledge abstention from alcohol every Sunday have the highest percentage of active alcoholics. Furthermore, in the 11th chapter of Matthew, we read, For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And boy, Jesus does not deny it. Well, that's enough for this first podcast. Time for me to go pour myself a bourbon. Be well. Thanks for listening. And if you would, tell a friend. Tell a friend.